Father, we love you and we praise your holy name. We thank you for the word of God. It is truly a blessing and indeed it does nourish our souls. And uh, Lord, it is a light to our paths. It is a lamp to our feet. And so I pray, God, that you would meet with us through your word because your word is living. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray that we would see your face in the scriptures and that this will be a time of worship and praise as we humble ourselves before your word and seek to be taught. I pray this be a time of encouragement, a time of refreshing for those who are here, for the hurting heart. I pray that there will be healing today. And I pray that the, for those who need to be challenged, would be challenged and that we would be convicted, that we would be encouraged and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as you guys know that we most often go through the Scriptures text by text, at least on Sunday mornings. So we can take a book and spend a lot of time in it, frankly, generally at least a year, roughly. And there is a purpose for that because essentially what we're doing is we're going thought for thought through the Scriptures. The author has something that he's attempting to communicate, and so we kind of figure out where that thought starts and where it stops. And on average, it seems to be somewhere between 10 to 15 verses, give or take. And sometimes it can go longer or shorter. And so in a sense, there's one main point, and we take that point, and then all the other surrounding verses uh, build on that or enforce that point. So in a sense, it's a, it's a one-point kind of message. It really simplifies things, and when you leave, you have that one single idea. So it's, it's more likely that if I were to ask you, what did you get out of the message today? You could actually tell me something. Um, now, on the other side of that, we can cover much larger portions of Scripture, and there might be multiple thoughts that we cover. And one of the, the benefits to that, obviously, is covering more Scripture, you know, and not spending a year plus in one single book, but we cover more Scripture and kind of get a different feel for different areas of the Word of God. And so, that's something that I have started to recently take up. Um, and so we just went through Philippians on Wednesday night. I had a blast doing that. And now we're in Ruth. So we'll be in Ruth chapter 2 this Wednesday, as Dalton said. I want to encourage you guys to come out to that. And so the remainder of Mark, I thought, let's pick up the pace and try that. So having said that, we're in Mark chapter 14, and we got 72 verses to cover. All right, so let's go. All right, verse 1. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So this is a time of celebration. It is a, a feast of the Lord. It is the Passover season. It happens yearly. And sometimes it's used interchangeably with the word unleavened bread. In this seven-day period, there are actually three different feasts that happen. It's kicked off with the Passover, and then unleavened bread, and then first fruits. And overall, it's a seven-day feast. So that's where we are. This is a great time of celebration, one of the most popular festivals of the, the Jewish calendar. And this will be the time when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. They look back to the Exodus when God took his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Well, the chief priests, the, the scribes, they're ready. They've had enough. They're ready to put Jesus to death. So they have begun plotting, and they're trying to figure out how to take him out. But they're afraid of the people. They said there might be an uproar. As I said, it's a, a popular time. It's a, a season of festivity there in Jerusalem, and it swells by the millions. 
and there's all kinds of visitors there on pilgrimage. And Jesus had a lot of popularity. He was loved by a lot of people. So they thought, let's not do this right now for fear of the people. What's interesting is the Pharisees didn't want to take him at that point, but they really didn't have any control or any say in the matter. Uh, Jesus ultimately was sovereign over the time in which he would lay down his life for uh, the world. And so it happened during the Feast of the Passover anyways. Even though it tells us that they had purposely decided they weren't going to do it during that time, Jesus was in control of that. Moving on, verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it out on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not always have. You do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So we're told that now they are at Simon the leper's house. And this is all we, all we hear of Simon the leper. It, it most likely Jesus has healed this man of leprosy. They certainly wouldn't be in his house. Uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus, when someone had leprosy, I mean, their house was pretty much condemned. They were quarantined or they had to go out uh, to the leper colonies, but you couldn't certainly go in their house. So... Clearly, Jesus had done something here, and they're here in his house celebrating, and we're told that a woman came in with an alabaster flask of oil. Now, this is also, this is Bethany, so it's about two miles away from Jerusalem. This is also the town of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and we know from the other scriptures that this woman who came in to worship Jesus is Mary, and she had this flask of oil. This is very costly. As they said here, it could have been sold for 300 denarii. One, one denarii is a, a day's wage for a laborer. So indeed, this is a lot of money. And so she broke it and she poured it out on, on Jesus. This is costly worship, costly devotion. Uh, you know, do we give Jesus the leftovers? Do, or do we give him the very best of what we have to give in, in all areas of our life? I love the verse... When David said in the Old Testament, I'm not going to give the Lord anything that didn't cost me something. He wanted to sacrifice to the Lord on this particular lot of land, and the person just wanted to give him the land. He said, sell me the land so that I can sacrifice to the Lord. The guy said, no, I'll give you the land. I'll just give it to you. He said, no, no, I don't want to give the Lord something that didn't cost me anything. David saw the value in giving something of, of worth to the Lord. And so did Mary. Now, she was criticized for this. And we know from the other Gospels it was Judas in particular that criticized her. But not because he was really righteous, but because he was a thief. He was the one that held the money. He kept the money box. He was the accountant for the group. And uh, he was actually stealing out of it. So that's why he was upset. And so his, his motives weren't really righteous. And as I was thinking through this, I thought... It's easy sometimes to think that our motives are righteous when they're really not. We can get indignant about something. We see somebody do something or say something, and we get 
we get hostile inwardly, but the reality is, is that um, it's, it's sinful, it's pride, it's arrogance. It's interesting how sometimes we get mad at people when they do the same thing we do. Our sin looks really bad on other people, you know? And so I think sometimes we tend to get a little more hot with other people who are struggling with the same thing that we're struggling. We're projecting that on them. And it's not righteous at all. And neither was uh, Judas. He was a thief. And he was saying this, you know, how dare, you know, there's poor people we could be feeding with that, that money. And uh, it was, he was a hypocrite. Uh, she worshipped and was despised for it. And that happens too. Some people have a real freedom to worship and it's a beautiful thing and some people don't and sometimes people see people worshiping and, and they, I'm going to confess my sin. Years ago, I was uh, attending a church, a very large, healthy church, and it, it was a mix. You could, uh, some people were dressed up and some people were not. And there was this one guy there that I don't know why, but he just really got on my nerves. He just really annoyed me. And he was a very exuberant guy, very animated, very excited, a real servant of the Lord. And um, I don't know what it was, but the more I saw him, the more annoyed I got. And uh, I remember at this particular time, I, was, I would come to church very well dressed. I mean, suit and tie the whole nine. And this guy was up on the stage, and uh, he was playing a bongo drum. And uh, he was leaping up and down in the air. I mean, he was an athletic guy, let's just say that. And he was pointing to the sky and, and just worshiping with all his might. And I was out in the crowd just snarling at this guy. I mean, I was foaming at the mouth. And it just occurred to me, it was like, what is wrong with you, man? You looking good in your suit and tie, you know, Mr. Dressed Up, and, and you're snarling at this guy who's worshiping the Lord with all his might. And I, I got really convicted. And the Lord had to work on my heart. And, uh, and He did. And I came to really love and respect that brother and appreciate him deeply. But it's, it's amazing how sometimes we worship or people worship and they can be despised by other people for different reasons. Now think about David again in the Old Testament. He was dancing before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into town. And his wife was watching through the, the window and she despised him in her heart, and she rebuked him and said, you know, didn't you look so kingly today in so many words out there uh, dancing around like a fool, basically, is what she was saying. And he said, if you thought that was bad, you haven't seen nothing yet. He's like, I'm going to worship even more than that. And so I appreciate that. And this woman was worshiping, and she brought a costly gift to the Lord, and she was despised. But Jesus defended her, and he said, she did what she could. She brought what she had. She gave it all away. She didn't hold back. What she did was a beautiful thing, and she'll always be remembered for it. And here it is, 2,000 years later, we're talking about it. Just as Jesus said. And he said that what she was doing was for his burial. I don't know that she knew that. I've heard one pastor suggest that she must have had some sort of insight into what was coming. But I, I tend to think that that was uh, prophetic and she didn't even know it. I think about the three gifts that Jesus received as a baby. You remember what they were? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right? And myrrh was something that would have been given for um, embalming. I'm sure they probably didn't understand that, but those were all prophetic. You know, it speaks of a king and of uh, priestly duties and then ultimately um, death. And so... Uh, I doubt they saw the significance in it. And she may have or may not have, but it's interesting to say the least. Christ was about to be crucified, 
And he said, you know, she's doing this for my, for my burial. She's anointing me for my death, which is soon to come. So verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So it appears at this point Judas had enough. He said, okay, all right, that's it. Uh, I'm done playing around, and, and he just went and he betrayed Jesus. I've heard some people suggest that Judas really had political motives behind all of this, as most likely all the disciples did. I've told you that, guys that countless times. I won't go into it, but they suggest that perhaps Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand in the matter, put him in a situation where he has to kind of step up as the, the Messiah and overthrow Rome. I don't know about all that, but at any rate, this seems to be the turning point for Judas, and he purposes in his heart now that he's going to go and he's going to uh, set up Jesus to be betrayed. And we know that he did that for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 12, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out, and they came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is the day of unleavened bread upon which the, the Passover lamb would be killed. Okay, so it's the first day of the feast. Their day started at sundown, so if they were to celebrate Passover, like if tomorrow was the Passover for us, we would get up in the morning and we would begin the day of Passover. But for them, it would begin today when the sun goes down. So as the sun goes down, that begins the next day, the day of the feast, and then it ends the following evening. And so they're getting ready to be at the Last Supper. This is the night before Jesus would be crucified. It's the beginning of the Passover feast. So the sun goes down, they meet for the, the Passover meal, they observe the Passover rituals, the rites, and then the following morning, early afternoon, Christ would be crucified. So they are here at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day that the lamb would be sacrificed. Jesus sends out two disciples to uh, make preparations. And let me just say this, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but Jesus always sent his disciples out in two. And as they were being discipled in ministry, as they were walking with Jesus, Jesus was intentional. He sought them out. He brought them in. He said, follow me, walk with me, watch me, learn from me. But he would always send them out in groups of two. And I had a pastor recent tell, recently tell me, you know, I don't do anything alone. Whatever I'm doing, I have somebody with me always for the purpose of learning. So if I'm doing marital counseling, he'll have a young married couple with him learning how to do that. If he's out doing hospital visitation, he'll have another young man uh, with him learning how to do that. And I thought that, that's you know, logical. I mean, that's, that's biblical. That is discipleship. And that's something that I want to see happening more here. You know? And so oftentimes I'll make pleas from the pulpit about children's ministry and, and things like that, and I'll really encourage you guys but honestly, I think it comes by someone just inviting. Say, hey, I, I, I do this. Would you just hang out with me, watch how I do it, and, and let me teach you? And that's how equipping happens within the body of Christ. That's how true discipleship happens. Uh, it doesn't only happen in a Bible study uh, format. You understand? You guys tracking with me? This was the model of Jesus in discipleship. And so 
uh, I want to start seeing that happening more here. So when you're doing something, if you're going to a prayer meeting, as I have mentioned on multiple occasions, we have various prayer meetings. If you're one of the few people that attends that, invite somebody. Personally invite someone to come along and follow you. That's discipleship. If you serve in the sound uh, at the soundboard or in the media room, invite somebody to come along with you and learn. If you're in the children's ministry, whatever the case may be, if you come to the Wednesday night service and we have a faithful group of people who do, invite somebody who doesn't. We want to be an inviting church. That's something that I really want to be a part of our DNA. You understand? We're an inviting church. We don't do anything alone. Everything that we do is with the intentions of training other people. That's discipleship so that they can turn and train other people. You're giving them a model so that they can give somebody else a model. And that's how it happens organically. And that was how Jesus did it. And uh, I want to see that uh, here. I want that to be a part of our DNA, what makes us who we are. So we'll talk more about that in time to come. But I see it in the Scriptures here. I wanted to point it out. That's how Jesus operated and and so that's how we operate amen Amen. all right uh this is in one sense very supernatural jesus is telling them okay you're going to go here you're going to see this guy i mean that's very specific right and he's saying so follow this guy and when you get to that house ask him this question and so it's like wow how would jesus even know that the timing obviously it's there's something supernatural about it but i think there's something else going on here I think at this point Jesus is actually talking in code because he doesn't want Judas to know where they're going to be at. Um, He already knows Judas is going to betray him. Jesus really wanted to celebrate this Passover dinner with his disciples uninterrupted. And so he didn't even uh, give Judas any idea where they were going to be meeting. He sent the other two disciples off and they kind of went on this, this crazy chase to find this guy to get led to a certain spot. And I think predominantly to keep Judas in the dark. And we'll kind of see that again as we get a little farther in the text. We do believe that where they're going to be celebrating Passover is at the home of John Mark. That name rings a bell. It should. He's the guy that wrote this book that we're reading, John Mark. And so we think that they celebrate the Last Supper at his home. He's very young at this point. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But we think that's where preparations are being made. So moving on, verse 17. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes away as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So when Jesus starts to indicate to all of them that, that he's going to be betrayed, I find it interesting that they all ask, is it me? And honestly, guys, I think that's right on. I think that's a healthy way of looking at it because none of us are above anything. You understand that? And so the disciples in this moment were really perplexed by this and they all asked the question is it me is it me and it went all the way around we should have a healthy distrust of ourselves we should never think that we're so great that we would never do such a thing that we would never fall into that the bible says be careful if you think you stand lest what lest you fall lest you fall pride goes before destruction when you 
so boldly proclaim, oh, you would never do that. Especially you look at someone else that, that falls and you look down your nose at them and think, I would never do such a thing. Uh, be careful. Be careful because that is a, uh, you're setting yourself up for a fall there. But when you have a, a healthy distrust of self, you realize, man, I am dust. I am weak. I know that in this flesh dwells no good thing. Um, and, and you have that kind of humility and dependence upon the Lord. So I, I appreciate that. It doesn't last for long, and we'll, we'll see that in a minute. But Jesus indicates the one that would betray him. He says, the one whom I dip with. And I shared with you guys a few weeks ago what this would have looked like sitting around the... the does anybody remember extra credit? What was the table called? Triclinium. Very good. All right. So they were sitting around this triclinium, and so they would have passed the bread and, and the, the bowls of herbs and all of that around. And so for Jesus to be able to dip with the person, obviously they had to be right beside him. And as we said, it, Judas was in that the place of highest honor next to the host. And Jesus indicated that there would be repercussions for this. It was written it had to happen, and it would, it would happen, but woe to the one through whom it, it does happen. And so uh, the guilty party would go punished for, for his actions, and there were repercussions. I, I guess I say that just to say, there are a lot of people who would have you believe that, you know, love wins and that there really is, uh, God is just this benevolent grandfather in the sky and um, it's okay, he doesn't really judge, there's really not consequences and when it's all said and done, we're just going to all be in heaven uh, singing and rejoicing. But the reality is there are repercussions for our sin. We are held accountable, we have to give an account for our wrongdoing and we will give an account if your sins have not been put on the, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus. So now, verse 22, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is ushering in the new covenant. Um, the Passover looked back to the, the passing over of the, the death angel over the people who sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on their doorpost. You'll remember that in Exodus. So they would look back and they would celebrate that time. It was a, they would commemorate that. But it was also a foreshadowing of that which was to come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus, His blood would be shed for many. And so Jesus is saying, it, the time has come. It is here. The Son of God has come. His body will be broken. His blood will be poured out. And so he gave us this reminder, and that's what it is. When we celebrate communion each month, that's what we're doing. The Lord has been so gracious to us to give us a visible reminder that as often as we do this, we remember the Lord's death. We remember it's a proclamation of the gospel. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians 11:26. Paul says that. For as long as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And so Jesus said, the time, my hour is here, the time is at hand, my body will be broken, my blood will be poured out. This is the new covenant. The old covenant, sins could not be washed away, they were covered over. And it was temporary. It had to happen over and over, repeatedly, repeatedly. It was a non, never-ending, non-stop sacrificial system. But Jesus brought in a new covenant. And you had to go through 
a priest. You had to go to the temple where God's presence was really there. And you had to go through a mediator. You had to go through a priest to bring your offerings and your, your sacrifices to the Lord. That was the old covenant. The new covenant, our sins are washed away once and for all. Past, present, future. Never to be remembered again. Moved as far as the east is from the west. Dumped in the ocean to the bottom of the sea. And now we can go straight into the presence of God. Christ is the mediator, the Son of God, but by Him we are able to come directly into the throne room of grace. No longer do we have to go through an earthly priest. No longer do we have to make you know, uh, regular and repeated sacrifices for our sin. It is done. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus did that. And He said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of Me. So when we celebrate communion, that's what we're doing. We're, we're really thinking carefully about Christ Jesus and how His body was broken and His blood was poured out not only for the sins of the world but for my sins. And so you think through that and you, you consider where are you at, how are you doing, you take inventory, you confess your sin, you draw close to the Lord afresh. And Jesus said that He would do this for us as often as we do it, do it in remembrance of Him. Moving on, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. So there was a real shift here, you may have noticed. And it went from self-distrust to self-assurance. All right? And Jesus has told them several times this was coming. And they never really seemed to get it. And again, He tells them that He's going to die and He's going he's to rise from the dead. And they didn't really seem to get that. It didn't make sense to them before he died. And after he died, we get the sense that they really weren't expecting that to happen. There was great confusion, great discouragement. Uh, but they never really seemed to get it. They always thought their, their idea of what this was going to look like, how it was going to go down, never really changed. It never really fell in line with the things that Jesus said. But now he's telling them that you're going to betray me. And Peter says, I would never do that. Never do that. And in one of the other Gospels, he says, these guys might do that, but I would never do that. And he says, even if I have to die for you, I will. You better believe it. And now they're all saying, we will too. That's right. And so now the self-assurance comes in. And you remember what I said, beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. They were so sure of themselves. Verse 32. Now they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. Alright, so they've, they've left the upper room and they're making their way to Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? 
Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So at this point, they leave the upper room. Now, it's important to notice uh, Judas is gone at this point. It doesn't tell us that here, but from the other Gospels, Judas already left. He went out to, uh, to find the, the religious leaders and to lead them to Jesus. So Jesus is left with 11, and he breaks them into two groups. They get to the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves eight of them on the outside, and he takes three in with them. These are the inner circle. You know, we see these guys. Jesus really shows some special attention to these, these guys right here several times throughout so he takes them a little farther into the garden and then he leaves them there and he continues on and he asks them to, to wait and to watch and to pray. And he says that he's exceedingly sorrowful. His soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. We see the humanity of Christ in this. Uh, I talked about that last week. Truly he was God in the flesh, but he was also very much flesh. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think, oh, well, he was God, so of course he could do these things. He was absolutely man, and he had the same, the same anxiety and fear and weaknesses and temptations that, that we may face. And he said that he was sorrowful to the point of death. He felt like he was being crushed in this moment. And he fell to the ground. He fell to the ground in prayer. Think about that. I mean, have you ever been so crushed? And I know some of you have, I've been told. Some of you can relate. You feel so crushed that you just collapse to the ground and you weep and you wail and you cry out to God. And we know that Jesus actually swept blood. He, the, the intensity of the anxiety that he was experiencing was such that he, he bled. It would seep through his pores. If that tells you anything of the weight that he was feeling in this moment. And he cries out to God, If it is possible, please let this cup pass from me. Let this hour pass from me. If there's any other way, what's he saying? He's essentially saying if there's any other way for salvation to be accomplished, if there's any other way to, to wash away the sins of man, let this cup pass from me. Let that be the way. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. But you know what, guys? There was no other way. There was no other way. Otherwise, the Son of God would not have had to have undergone this. The cup would have passed from him. He would not have had to drink the, the wrath of God that was meant for the nations. There was no other way. And he cried out, Lord, if there is, let it be. Jesus is the only way. If Allah could save, if enlightenment through following the path of Buddha could save, if, there were, if your works, if your good deeds could save you, then there would be no need for the cross. There would be no need for the, the father to crush his son like this. But there was no other way. Sinful man cannot pay for the sins of sinful man. You understand that? We cannot make ourselves right with God. It required the sacrifice of the only righteous one, the only holy and just son, Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God who alone was righteous, died in the place of sinful man. And that was what was required. 
That was the requirement that God demanded. And he gave the Father that. He said, not my will, your will be done. And Jesus, he went all the way. He didn't stop short. He went all the way to the cross. Now he found these guys sleeping. Three times. Three times he comes back. And he he says to them, look guys, you need to watch. You need to pray lest you enter into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so I think he's kind of following up to what they were saying earlier. Guys, you might be willing, you may think you're willing, but your flesh is weak. You need to be praying. You need to be watching and praying that you don't enter into temptation. Because it's coming. It's coming. And don't be so sure of yourself. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray, pray lest you enter into temptation. He said, could you not watch for an hour? I remember, um, you know, I'm an antsy guy. I can't stand still. I can't sit still. And um, it's hard for me to sit for an hour in in a prayer meeting. And I was telling Pastor Vince that because when I first came here and we would be praying together, I would notice, like, that guy is a champ. I mean, he'll keep going. An hour has passed, and I'm, like, looking at my clock, and, man, he's just, like, hitting it. And I'm like, man, how do you do that, you know? I was like, I can barely sit still for an hour. And he said, well, the Lord said, can you not watch and wait for an hour? And I was so convicted by that. I was like, ah, you got me. And so ever since then, I thought, yeah, okay. I mean, it's just an hour. So anyways, they couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. And so three times Jesus came and he found them, them sleeping. And then finally he said, it's enough. My betrayer is at hand. Rise, let us go. Verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook and fled. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. You find that interesting that Jesus had to be identified after all this time, all these years, Jesus said, I was in the temple, I was out in public preaching, teaching. You know, they still needed someone to identify him. That tells me that Jesus didn't stand out in the crowd. Out of a lineup of 12 people, he couldn't be identified. Judas had to take him there and then and kiss Jesus and identify him. Jesus didn't have a halo hovering above his head. I mean, he was very common. And the Bible says there was really nothing beautiful about him. He had no form of beauty that we should look upon him. He was a very normal person. And we know that it was Peter who drew the sword. He cut Malchus's ear off, the high priest, his, his servant, cut his ear off, and Jesus actually healed the ear. So he rebuked Peter for pulling out the sword. He put the ear back on the servant. And then he says, look, guys, you know, is this really necessary? I mean, he went willingly as a, as a, a sheep before the shearers. He was silent. He went. He never did fight this. He came for this reason. Remember, they didn't even want to set him up at this time in the first place. But Jesus sovereignly set all of this up. And it says that they all forsook him and they fled. Jesus, the forsaken one. Jesus was forsaken so that we didn't have to be. 
That's a heavy thought. You know, everybody ran out on Jesus. Jesus was forsaken by those who were closest to him. He was betrayed by one of those who was closest to him, betrayed with a kiss. He was mocked. He was taken off. We'll get more into that in a moment. Um, And ultimately, he was forsaken even of God. He was forsaken by those who were closest to him and forsaken by his Father so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken. Jesus did that for us. He was, the lamb was beaten and striped. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was forsaken by men and forsaken by God so that we would never have to be if we put our trust in him, we put our faith in him, the finished work of the cross, and we turn from our sins and we follow Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father never to be forsaken. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I was forsaken, but I will never forsake Jesus, the forsaken one. I, uh, you know, I've thought about this before. I've had times of my life where I was under intense grief, and I thought about this. I thought, you know, Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and if he is acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, why should I not be? You ever thought about that? You know, and that, believe it or not, I have found some comfort in that at times. I could relate with with the Lord on some small level in that way. Jesus understands. This is part of why Jesus came as a representative of mankind. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been forsaken? Well, so has he. He can relate. He understands. He can sympathize with your weakness and with your pains. And he's there to love you and to comfort you. And he won't do that to you. He will not forsake you. He won't leave you. Moving on, verse 51. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. That is a very weird and random verse. And it's like, what in the world is going on here? Okay, And it's kind of cool because we, we, we think, okay, this is speculation, but I think it's good reason to believe. This is John Mark writing about himself. And so you'll remember they were at John Mark's house, we believe, celebrating the Last Supper, and Judas left. Judas left, he went out to betray Jesus. Where do you think Judas would have went first when he came back with the betrayer, with the, the chief priests and all of them? Back to John Mark's house, right? And the disciples, Jesus, they're long gone. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they would have gone from there now to the Garden. And Mark uh, would have most likely seen all of this and understood something's not, not right. And he would have ran ahead of them to try to get to the Garden and warn Jesus and most likely it's the middle of the night. He was asleep. It's hot. There's not air conditioning. You know, they, they uh, are dressed lightly while they're sleeping with a linen cloth. And that's all he's got. And so he gets out there. He's too late. They get Jesus. The disciples flee. Mark tries to get away. They try to get him. And they grab his linen cloth. And he just takes off. He books it. He's out of there. And he runs off naked. Okay? And so that, I, as best I can gather, that's exactly what happened. And it makes sense to me. How about you guys? Okay, moving on, verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. People criticized Peter for following at a distance and warming himself by the enemy's fire, as it were. 
but I don't. I suppose that we wouldn't have even done that much. I mean, we would have just booked it out with the rest of the disciples. I commend Jesus, or not Jesus, but Peter, for at least doing that. We do know, however, that John, the Apostle John, was the only one who did not flee. He went with Jesus all the way into the courtyard and even to the cross. John the Apostle, the youngest of the, of the disciples, the Apostles, uh, was the one that was with Jesus the entire time. Moving on, verse 55. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. They had to make up false testimonies. There was nothing that they could bring against Jesus to incriminate him. Think of how many times, just in the Gospel of Mark alone, they tried over and over and over to set him up so that they could incriminate him, and they never could. They couldn't do it. And so finally they said, all right, we're just going to have to lie. So we, they tried to get some false witnesses to come in, and everything that they said, nothing lined up, and they could tell. And what Jesus actually said is, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so you can see how the wording is totally different. And we know that Jesus was talking about his own body. He was basically speaking prophetically of his own resurrection. And so they had to bring in false witnesses. But there is a true witness. Verse 60 and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. This is one of the most clear-cut statements we have of Jesus speaking of who he really is. Oftentimes he wouldn't do that, especially when the religious leaders tried to force him, he wouldn't do it. Uh, I think of the woman at the, the well in John 4. Uh, that was probably one of the, the other more clear uh, times where Jesus came out with it and said who He was. But here He says He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And He will come in the clouds of heaven with God in His glory. And that is glorious. And they freaked out. And the high priest tore his clothes. That was a sign of rage or, or mourning or whatever the case may be. And he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy yourself. And so Jesus did that on purpose, clearly. As I said, this is all God's time clock. And Jesus knew what he was doing. And there were times where he didn't go certain places or he would walk out of the midst of people or he wouldn't allow people to say who he was. And here he says it, I am he. And he knew what was, what was coming. He knew what was getting ready to happen. And it was exactly, I'm sure as he expected, the spitting began, the mocking began, the beatings began. They covered his head with a bag and would punch him in the face and say, oh, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. And so now it begins. The, the suffering is here. The hour has come. Jesus is betrayed. He's uh, been put on this, this uh, false trial with false witnesses. And then he was, uh, now he's being mocked and beaten and spit on. Verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came 
And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, he will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. So three times Peter is accused of being a follower of Christ. He denies it. His accent even gave it away. And I know what that's all about. I mean, I'm always talking to people. And I'm like, so where are you from? And I'm like, why do you ask? And he couldn't deny it. Try as he may, they knew better. And so the first time he said, hey, I don't even know what you're saying. I don't even know what you're talking about. And then the second time he simply, he's like, no, 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 no. He denies it. And the third time he cusses at them and says, I don't even know who this guy is. And one of the other Gospels tells us at that point he actually made eye contact with Jesus from across the way, the rooster crows. And essentially when Jesus was telling him that, he was basically, when does the rooster crow, by the way, generally? The morning time. And so it's early, it's nighttime, and, and Jesus is basically saying, before the morning time, you're going to deny me three times. And so the rooster crows a second time, it all clicks. Peter realized what has happened. And now let me just say, this is what the fear of man will do to you. Um, the fear of man is strong. And we can be so sure, so confident in ourselves, but the fear of man will make us do the most cowardly of things. And I'm not beating up on Peter at all, but it will make us even deny our Lord. Don't do that. Who cares about man and what man thinks? Don't fall for the intimidation, the mockery, uh, the, the pressure. Blessed are you if you're reviled for Christ's sake. Blessed are you if you experience shame and derision for the sake of the name. Amen? And Peter, he, he gave to that. He bowed to it. He was fearful. He was scared of man, and he denied the Lord. And the thing that he swore he would never do, the moment happened, he did it. And then he realized, it dawned on him, I have forsaken the Lord. I have denied Him, just as He said. And it crushed him. It broke him down. He wept bitterly and he ran out of that place. What a terrible place to be. What a terrible place to be. This is a, and I apologize, this is kind of a, a rough spot to stop. Um, but this is not the end of the story. Amen? This is not the end. God's graciousness is demonstrated as we move on in the story and, and Peter will be restored. Um, but I guess I just want to leave with this. I want to leave you thinking about the glories of the cross, but our Lord was, was forsaken so that we didn't have to be. Everyone left Him. It kind of ends on that note. Those who were closest to Him are gone, and now He's by Himself, and He's being beaten and spit on. And the Lord did that for us, but it didn't end there. The Lord rose from the grave. The Lord goes on. He's victorious. Now He's seated at the right hand of the Father on high, and He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so we have that to rejoice in. We have that to celebrate. And let's do that. So let's close with a time of celebration. Worship team, would you come up? Let's thank the Lord that He was willing to be forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. Let's thank the Lord that we'll never have to know that.
from this day forward. If you don't know him, today is the day you can know him. And so uh, I just encourage you to cry out to the Lord, to praise him. Let's have a moment of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness demonstrated to us, but we recognize that it did come at a cost. That salvation may be a free gift of grace, but it cost you something. It cost you your son. It cost you the most valuable and precious thing that you had to give. And Lord Jesus, it cost you your life. You were forsaken of men so that we wouldn't ever have to be. And so we praise your holy name. We thank you for that, Lord. We rejoice and we celebrate your kindness. And we worship you for your goodness. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.